Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. And here we are. Those of you who uh, who were around in the 80s and 90s may have noticed the media consolidation trend that was uh, really go- hit, getting into overdrive at that time. And um, so when the internet came around, we thought, hey, this is an opportunity for voices that are being pushed out of the media to express themselves. And that was a very exciting concept. And indeed, we look around and we see all kinds of voices available to us right now. But I'm increasingly becoming suspicious of that whole idea. It seems that in some respects, media consolidation was brought to its fullest realization in the internet age. In this sense, we are now all completely absorbed when it comes to our information gathering, if not more, in the same basic platform. So when we think about the infrastructure of the, of the internet, the backbone, that's common to all platforms on it. In the past, a publisher would have its own infrastructure. They would have their, it would be a publishing house. So they would have the means of production for whatever it is that they were going to disseminate. But no one except the backbone, whoever that is, has the means of production online. And indeed, we see that certain voices now are being kicked off of various platforms for a variety of different reasons. Some of which seem legitimate and others uh, really seem incredibly hypocritical. And so as a voice with very little impact whatsoever, but, you know, I'm throwing my hat into the ring to whatever degree that's possible. So far, I haven't been in any way censored, but I don't have a large enough audience for that to be an issue. And my sense is that the degree to which any platform has enough support nowadays to really make a go of it, to to be the thing that one does to make a living, because we are still all beholden to the mighty dollar, or whatever particular form of currency you happen to be uh, wrapped in, let's say. So, if you're going to spend your time and energy doing something, then you have to have some return in order to keep going. And when it comes down to it, an operation such as the one I'm doing is trivial compared to what a publishing house would have had to do in the past. So it's very easy for any established interest group to support whatever voice they want. And the fact that I've gotten 
so little support suggests to me that I think of it as actually being a good sign in many respects because it means that whatever is established isn't interested in supporting this. <laughs> you know, if we feel that the way that things are established isn't really doing such a great job, then if you get a lot of support for whatever it is you're doing, you might be a little bit suspicious at this point because very few people have the means to give extra money to something like this. You know, there's still some people with with a job that gives them discretionary income that they can do whatever they want with, and then there's an even smaller subgroup who would put their money towards some kind of a media project where what they think is worth being voiced is being voiced. I very rarely support anything like that. There's a couple of things I do support, but um, at a very minimal level. I used to subscribe to various publishers, let's say, but... Um, over the years, I've gotten disillusioned with just about all of them. And I would imagine that that's for the same reason. Because in order to have an ongoing venture that supports your ass, you have to, in some way or another, fit in with the establishment. Just watched recently that very controversial film produced by Michael Moore called uh, Planet of the Humans. It's a devastating film. I don't think the environmental community will ever recover from it. But then again, it doesn't seem that this would matter very much because what's pretty clear is that the environmental community was enfranchised by the establishment and as a consequence was essentially maintaining the status quo, despite their rhetoric. I've seen a couple of criticisms of the film, which strike me as being pretty anemic, which means kind of a lame critique, not really addressing what the film brings out. So if you haven't seen that film, and you are not yet entirely depressed about what's going on in the world, I highly recommend it. So this is getting to be a somewhat long and rambling introduction, but the point of it is that we have this idea of the new normal that seems to have appeared all of a sudden, everywhere in the media. And we might be somewhat suspicious of that, because, of course, most of us are watching enfranchised media platforms in one way or another. You know, some, even something like Joe Rogan, you know, which I enjoy to a degree. He's not my favorite, but he gets some good guests. They have some good, you know, hashing it out kind of conversations. It goes on a bit too long for me, but uh, I think it's better than many other things out there. But clearly, that guy has not only captured an incredible share of the viewers, but is, how shall we put it? Because, you know, he does get pilloried in the media, but the fact that they cover him at all means that he is enfranchised. <laughs> because if they really don't want to have anything to do with you, then they just ignore you. So he's playing a role in in the narrative just like Alex Jones did in a certain way I don't mean to compare the two because they're not the same although of course Jones 
did appear on Joe Rogan's show quite a bit, I think, until more recently. I think it would be fair to say that Rogan has distanced himself from from Alex Jones, and I think there's good reasons for everyone to distance themselves from Alex Jones. <laughs> the point being here that the new normal is a narrative that we might question. Of course, it's coming at a pivotal time, and if we just take everything at face value, that, uh, that there's a global pandemic and that there is a dangerous virus that can cause all kinds of severe problems, apparently not just for people who are predisposed to getting sick with uh, existing conditions, but um, we have all heard stories of people apparently in the prime of life with a decent health profile who die. You know, that's the narrative, and, and so... Now I think many of us know people who have died, so it's hitting close to home for many people. But when you compare what's currently happened to the kinds of epidemics in the past, it's still, you could say, you know, relatively minor, and perhaps that's because we've taken all these precautionary measures. But this is just to say it's an incredibly complex situation and that uh, we should all be paying attention to it very closely. And the idea that whatever it is that's being presented in the media would be an accurate portrayal that would necessarily be in our best interests might be something that we would take with a grain of salt. In this episode, I'm pleased to welcome a new guest to the program, someone who I met through Colin. His name is Devin, also known as Devin the Mindful Mage a very earnest and thoughtful young man. I think you'll find the conversation interesting. As usual, if you would like to support this program, there are links in the show description. Also, if uh, you would like to contact my guest, I have provided his links in the show notes as well. I think that's about all I have to say right now. Enjoy the show. Hello. Yes. Hi there. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Beautiful. Amazing. Well, we uh, we meet at last. Yes, virtually. Yes, that seems to be the way that people meet now. It's the new normal, according mm -hmm. to mainstream media. Exactly, and I think that I do not like that phrase. Yeah, I guess on some level, though, normal is always in flux. So uh, we can't expect mm -hmm. whatever normal was to continue forever. Uh, but yeah, whatever normal is, I, I don't know whether your objection is to the concept of normal or new normal. Uh, well, the concept of normal is a useful one to have. Um, but... I, I don't watch the news when I can help it. Um, and I was recently at my parents' house and the television was on pretty much all the time. Hmm. And that's why I was able to hear the, the use of that phrase, the new normal. And that is such a loaded phrase. 
that is hypnosis in action. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think probably you could say that the television itself is hypnosis in action, regardless of what's being. Yes. Welcome back to your TV programming. Right. Yeah. Well, programming is uh, it's what you do to uh, produce particular behaviors, right? And, uh, mm -hmm. and so we've been a species that have been programmed well for a very, very long time, really. I mean, you can make the, the case that, in essence, texts were a form of programming prior to the electronic media. So it's a, mm -hmm. a long, long history of human beings trying to get particular behaviors out of each other, some with greater success than others. Mm. But it does seem that uh, at certain points we, we come to uh, a pivot where there seems to be a change that everyone notices and that on some level everyone can agree, what, if not on the details of what the change is, at least on the fact that a change has occurred. So it seems that we're at one of those inflection points right now. Yes, uh, we've all been immersed in... Well, we, we live in a consensus reality all the time, um, which is comprised of many, many millions of unique stories based on each of our own perspectives. Each of us is living a unique story simply because we are seemingly separate from one another. But now something has happened that is acting as a magnet to pull us all into a more cohesive consensus story. Hmm. Um, and that is desirable for anyone who wants to control the entire population of the world. It's that all of the population is sharing the same story. The consensus reality that you were saying we've all been living in, is that something that's an umbrella that includes all the polarization and uh, disagreement in essence? So how are you visualizing or envisioning what this consensus is and how it uh, is an umbrella for all of the kind of chaos and confusion and discord that's been happening, at least within the mainstream dialogue, I guess you could say? Well, I'll start from where I can, from where I can. I'll start from where I can, and I'll finish there too, because I cannot really reach out any farther than my own perspective. That's all I can ever know. Mm -hmm. Everything else is an informed assumption. I literally, by definition, by the nature of this reality in which I find myself right now, I cannot know for certain anything beyond my own experience. And that fundamental doubt is, I think, the, the foundation for most conspiracy theories out there. Hmm. Um, it's, the, it's really the found, like, for example, take one of the most extreme theories that contradicts the main story of modern day earth, the flat earth hypothesis. We'll call, we'll call it the flat earth hypothesis. Okay. There are thousands of people who believe that. That's and I think, mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And I think, I think for one, I've, I've sort of, I haven't really looked into it myself a lot, but from my vague understanding of it, I've done sort of like a psychological analysis of the flat earth theory. For one, it is perhaps one of the most outlandish contradictory worldviews today that you can have, that anyone can have. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's almost like saying, how can I be the most different possible? How can I go the, the hardest against the grain possible? Oh, well, I'll believe that the earth is flat. Um, it contradicts everything we know today. Mm-hmm. And so I think at the core of that, there is this sense of rebellion. And I think we all have a sense of rebellion. We've had it as kids and a lot of us have it now against uh, our more uh, governmental parental figures mm-hmm. um, or even against scientific or religious authority figures. I want to say, no, I go against that. And the earth is flat. Boom. That's like the biggest I can go. <laughs> it's a pretty um, extreme position. Yes. And, and we, we have so to, to what extent it's something which was uh, naturally grown, homegrown, if you like, or if it was something that was cultivated in some way or another, like uh, what number of the proponents who are really active in the flat earth world are genuine believers and what number of them are, you might say, uh, those who are seeking to provoke or instigate or uh, confuse, you know? Uh, it seems like yes. in many uh, fields now, and you know, the, the various kind of uh, groups that have formed around different ideas, there are actors of various types uh, with different incentives and different goals involved in pushing the same narrative, or at least pushing the development of a narrative in one direction or another. So, um, so that I think also kind of gets folded into the mix when we're thinking about the the various types of positions that people are taking, but to get back to the original thing, the idea that there's a a kind of overall consensus. I mean, in some sense, all of this really is happening within cyberspace. You know, the, Mm -hmm. the number of ways in which people communicate outside of cyberspace is rapidly diminished, you know? So it may have been in the past that there was a magazine about UFOs or something like that, but most of those things have fallen by the wayside and most of the dialogue is occurring within the framework of this technology. And so on a certain level, that is a consensus in and of itself, just the fact that it's all basically the same platform. Yes, and it is interesting to think that, I guess this, the internet sort of mirrors the analog world in that, uh, and I don't know much about the internet myself. All I know is the surface level of the internet that most people today who have a connection to it use, like the social media and YouTube and news outlets and looking up a recipe online or whatever. But that's just the tip of the internet iceberg, right? There's the dark net. Mm-hmm. And all of these other things that require a special connection to, to reach. And that's, that's beyond me. I've never needed to use it. I haven't really ever 
uh, been interested in exploring it. Uh, that might change in the years to come, depending on what happens uh, in the analog world. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Layers upon and, layers. You know, it's mm. one backbone, but a number of different, you might say, parallel dimensions, something along those lines. In theory, we all have access to all of it, but when it really comes down to it, even the people who are super expert and skilled, they're probably only going to operate in, in a limited number of domains. There's, you just can't do too many, right? So there's, mm -hmm. in some ways, you could say that, that it mirrors the specialization that's happened in our species since we developed tools and started to become expert in various activities. Uh, mm -hmm. Similar types of things are happening depending upon what particular computer language you've decided to learn and whether you're dealing with, you know, the backbone of the web itself or applications or, you know, media manipulation, all the various tasks, you know, which are numerous when it comes to this cybernetic world that we're all increasingly being drawn into in one way or another. And it's something that I wonder whether or not it's, a good idea to spend a lot of time here. I mean, to some extent, by default, I find myself doing it. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it does seem like it is still a choice, although we are, I think, increasingly encouraged to do everything online. It's amazing the number of things which, you know, if you want to get a, uh, if you want to, pass a, a quiz now if you're going to school or even if you're in the volunteer fire department you have to take these courses online most of it is done online mm -hmm. so just uh qualifying for work in the real world requires that you spend a fair amount of time here yes yeah that's true um and I noticed that it just in my own experience and, and uh, also I want to make sure that, that we, that I do touch on this idea of the consensus reality. So I know anytime we talk about anything in particular, we always sort of make spirals around the main topic. Um, but please continue refocusing me if I happen to go too far off. Um, okay. Yeah. No worries about that. Hmm. So, yeah, I, in my own experience, I've been noticing some physical and mental strain uh, when, I, when I use more of my time to stare at a screen or put my attention, my focused attention into doing things on a computer or on my phone. Um, and it really feels like my body and mind are calling for a rest from this stuff. There's a whole, there's a whole material, physical world out there, grounded. There's dirt, there are trees, there are clouds and oceans. And it's, it's important that as we, as we do evolve. I am getting species, a lot of background noise, by the way. I apologize. I'm staying in a friend's house right now. Yeah, no problem. We are uh, isolating together. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that's, uh, you know, uh, there seem to be now a big line in the sand between those of us who are 
taking this thing seriously and those of us who are not. Uh, there are still plenty of people mm-hmm. who aren't really isolating, who are running around just sort of business as normal in an environment, of course, that's anything but business as normal. But nevertheless, if we're going to really take a, a stab at being effective in flattening the curve and reducing the spread, it's going to be really problematic to not have a population that agrees upon the strategy, or at least the, uh, I guess, the tactics, if I was going to be technically correct there. So that seems to be, you know, if, if things are as they've been presented to be, which I guess is always a big question nowadays, it seems to be a serious problem. You know, we see what happened in Italy and what's happening in Ecuador right now, where there really were apparently not taking it seriously until it was way too late. And I think uh, Mm -hmm. while a lot of people have gotten the memo in the U.S., uh, there's still not general agreement. So in that sense, we haven't really come to a consensus on the best way to address the situation, although we do seem to have consensus that something big has happened. I think that's kind of maybe about as detailed as the actual consensus could be. But I'm not yes. sure. Maybe maybe you have an idea of of how that consensus might be flushed out in more detail. Well, everything is a story. That yeah. is probably my my most foundational perspective. That is the foundation of my perspective these days. Everything is a story, mm-hmm. and if I'm telling my story, I'm living my story it's difficult for me to really understand the it's understand it's 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 difficult for me to understand how important or just the details of something that's happening beyond my reach of perception mm-hmm. so this is getting I back can read the news and see what's happening this is get, getting back a little bit to what you were saying before about all we can really know is within what within our own experience and that things beyond our own experience are, well, beyond our ability to know. However, there is kind of a gray line there because we're always experiencing something new. And so mm-hmm. as time passes, which I, is a phrase that I don't really like, but it says what it, you know, mm-hmm. want to convey, mm-hmm. uh, we are continually provided with the opportunity to expand our range of experience. Uh, Mm -hmm. You have this a lifetime over the course of which we have a variety of experiences which broaden our horizons and we can call upon that experience, which is the reservoir of pretty much our interpretation. So you could say that that's kind of where the story comes into play. So we have a, a narrative about all the various experiences that we've had. And then there's that always that potential of, of going beyond all of that, which is, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit further out towards the edges of where comfort is. So that's kind of the scheme that, yeah. I, that I use for, for that issue to, to think of our, our interaction with the world as, yes, there is a limit. But at the same time, it's not a hard line that can't change. We're continually in a dynamic dialectic with it. Right. We don't live in a vacuum. 
mm-hmm. um, and the the bubble that seemingly separate. There is really there there actually is no separation between anything. Um, yeah, it's only a it's only a perceivable separation. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. So boundaries on some level they exist, but uh, a completely non-permeable boundary? Mm-mm. No. No, yeah. So. Uh, to your point though, about that limit on the edge where new information is always readily accessible, but not forcibly delivered. Um, a lot of people do not choose to go beyond that zone. Yeah. And they will do whatever they can actually exert force to maintain their present story right. because they don't want to change for whatever reason. Change can be scary. Change can be annoying. It, it can be change is really what, what allows us to grow, though. And if we stop changing, then we're basically dead. Mm-hmm. So, like, change is always happening. Um, right. And sometimes the change that occurs is more forcible. So you were saying before, um, how, how would we get everyone to participate in the same, the same consensus reality where this virus is a big deal? Maybe it's being hyped up a little bit, but the mainstream media always hypes things up because it's entertainment. It's not just news. It's entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe there are some mistruths being shared. Okay. But I think it's fair to say that the virus is a real thing. It is affecting thousands and thousands of people. But it's not very real for a lot of people still. Right. And how do we make it real? If mainstream media can't hype it up enough to really scare everyone into believing it's real. And here's another thing. I don't think fear, well, first I'll say fear is a very effective way of controlling people. Mm -hmm. Um, Because when you get a bunch of people into a fear state with a problem happening, and then you propose a solution it doesn't really matter how extreme the solution is. If you can guarantee that people won't be afraid anymore, even if they have to sacrifice some of their freedom, they will probably be willing to do that. Well, it's not even that they uh, won't even be. It's not even that they won't be afraid anymore. It's just that if you can convince them that that might actually solve the the source of their fear, that in some way they're able to assuage the yes. fear. Yeah. Uh, and it quite often doesn't, right? So quite often right. it persists and it just becomes this kind of, let's say, ongoing story. A- another kind of brick in the wall, if you like, to, uh, to build an edifice with. And it seems that the issue with change is, is that the longer you wait to really change in a way that actually addresses what's happening on the ground level, you know, in reality, not just within the story, mm-hmm. because it's, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that you put forth is that everything is a story. And it's like, well, yes, that's true, except that at the base level of it all, there is a reality. And that's what the, all the stories are about. So, you know, the stories are 
to some extent, always removed from reality, some more than others, right? Uh, the Taoists mm-hmm. say that as the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. So whenever you mm-hmm. string together a bunch of words, already you've lost the essence of reality. But, you know, if we're going to communicate and assuming it's worth, you know, doing the mm-hmm. effort to, to communicate with each other, we're forced to use <laughs> language. And, and so that's just kind of baked into the pie. But of course, some of the stories can be so far removed from what's happening that it really turns into um, a kind of barrier to perceiving reality, which means that there's like resistance between the state of mind of the of some segment of the civilization and the direction that reality is is heading. And it seems like that's mm-hmm. when you really start to get the traumatic changes because people have invested so much psychic energy into trying to believe a story that doesn't really hold any water that by the time the message that gets through to them comes, it's so big that it blows them out of the water. And that's mm-hmm. what I'm, you know, cause we've seen so many phases now since, I mean, it's hard to know really where to begin this clock of how long humanity has been um, living inside of fanciful stories that don't quite add up. That's like a whole realm of uh, like a, a realm of study in and of itself. I think that would be a really interesting mm-hmm. thing to explore. But let's say just for a very long time, we've had a variety of ideas about things that don't quite work out. And we've been very stubborn in, um, in the messages that have been coming that show that we don't quite have the right story going. And so even just in recent history, it seems like we really didn't get the message, the message the last time we had a crisis, like let's say 2008, big financial crisis, all kinds of major problems revealed with the way that our economy was working and how the banking institutions were behaving and what have you. But after that, did anything change? Well, no. Everyone basically stuck with the same narrative. And we're in, in the same but worse situation now with a whole added layer of a global health crisis. So, yeah, I think that that Ah. kind of of is a, it's a, it's a tough one because like flexibility is required in order to adapt to change. Right. But Mm -hmm. we've been so rigidly devoted to certain narratives that our ability to become flexible seems really underutilized. It's not really something that our culture does particularly well. Yeah, this is this is a critical point. I think eventually we will experience a sense of normality again, but that normal will be different. I don't think it's going to, like this pandemic situation is temporary, as all things are. This will pass, and eventually we won't need to isolate anymore, and we can then gather in groups again. And that aspect of relating with people will probably be very similar to how it was before, maybe even with a deeper connection to people. Maybe this time, because here's, here's 
humans are storytellers, whether we identify as that or not, we are storytellers um, because things that happen, let's, let's say you mentioned uh, there is the base reality and then there are the stories that we tell about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and as soon as we put it into words or even start thinking about it, it's a story removed from just what is. So right. let's say this is happening. There's a virus situation that's all around the world and governmental bodies are asking uh, the people of all of, these dif- all of these different countries to self-isolate to stop the spread of the virus. Okay, that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now, what do we do with this reality? Right. Personally, I think it's helpful to tell a story. Um, it can be as simple as, well, well, storytelling is almost equivalent to meaning-making. And humans are basically meaning-making machines. That's what we do. We make meaning out of a meaningless reality. I would say that that's what some of us do. But yeah, I basically agree, yeah. Yes. Perhaps some of us do it more consciously and intentionally than others. Um, well, I think that there is, a, there is a, a kind of type or um, there's a type of human mind that has either abandoned the possibility of meaning, so kind of a nihilism, or yes, yeah, or yeah. just never took much interest in it to begin with. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. Uh, All right. I'll agree with that. Yes. Um, so, so for me, what am I doing with, with this time? I, I have done a lot of self-exploration uh, for the past eight years of my life. And I've developed my emotional intelligence. I've developed... Um, an ability to look within and self-reflect and hold space for emotion in general, mine, other people's, it's part of my work that I do. Hmm. Um, And I've also learned how to navigate my own mind in the way that I feel is most beneficial for myself, which means I do my best to not worry. I consciously abate worrying because worrying doesn't really solve anything. It's, it's more hurtful than it is helpful. I can logically, without any emotion, uh, think of a plan or imagine what could happen based on uh, an initial event and plan for that without worrying. Worrying is like a churning, a fearful churning. And a lot of people are worrying and there's a lot of fear about this. And being in a fear state is not helpful helpful nor is it healthy it's actually it's there's the the mind and body are are one thing even i mean even western medicine these days is agreeing with that um so if we really want to do the best we can do to maintain our health uh particularly physical health in the case of this virus but also equally as important as our mental health and what we can do is tell the story that this situation we find ourselves in is the perfect opportunity for us. And I recognize we all live in different life circumstances. I recognize that my own is very different from others, and I have access to certain privileges that many others don't. 
But if anyone is listening to this message that you and I are sharing right now, they have the ability, it is their birthright actually, as a conscious being on this planet with a body and a mind of their own, it is their ability to calm their mind, breathe consciously, feel the body, feel what it's like to have a body, feel what it's like to be in space, listen to the sound around you. Here's where having our own personal reality bubble can come in very handy. There's a balance, of course. We have to recognize the larger consensus story that's happening, the reality of the greater situation, because we are always within something larger than ourselves, always. And there are smaller things within us. That's just the way it is, as above, so below. Mm -hmm. But we can recognize the situation outside of us, virus happening, and also not poison our minds and thusly our bodies with constant fear. Right. It's okay to turn off the news for a few hours, a day. You've heard enough already. Turn it on tomorrow. Read the news tomorrow. It's okay to just close your eyes. If you're alone, great. If you're with others, great. It doesn't matter. We can do this work on our own or together with others. And just look around and feel what is present right now. Mm -hmm. Are you well? What's your state? Can you breathe deeply? Yes, great. Can you hear the sounds around you? Excellent. And just sit in that for a little while. This is what we might call a meditation, a simple meditation, just to chill out, really. That's all we need to do. And it's amazing how how effective just 60 seconds of conscious mindfulness can be. Try five minutes, 10 minutes. It's like it's you've hit a reset button on your experience of reality. And then from that new state of centeredness, we can maybe have a peek back into the larger story of what's going on and see it not with fear, not even with joy or happiness, or we don't need to see it with any emotion at all, but we can definitely approach our own situation, whatever it is, with just a little bit of gratitude for what we have right now. And that is really the ultimate medicine in these, in these times, just being grateful for what we have. Well, I, what you're talking about here, I think, cuts to the core of many of the bottom line kind of responses that uh, that are discussed on this program, which come down to, you know, regardless of what it is that you're being confronted with, the control over the mind, and maybe control really isn't the ideal word for it, but the mm -hmm. familiarity with the, the monkey mind, with the dancing kind of tossing to and fro, the churning of that unbridled mind and enough familiarity with it to be able to neutralize those waves. And um, that kind of gets back to Patanjali, the 
using the opposite as a means of being able to dampen the gyrations within the mind. So if you're uh, in a state of worry, you know, being able to flip to the other side. I remember when I was studying Taiji Chuan, there was a, a woman in the class who had a shirt on the back of which said, worry is not preparation. And mm. I remember at that time thinking, you know, that's just such an obviously true statement. Why is it so difficult to practice it? And, and over the course of many years, you know, uh, contemplating on that and doing various studies and practices, it's, uh, it's amazing to discover that actually the only thing that we really do have control over is what's going on in the mind even though it seems initially that that's not the case, it turns out to very obviously be the case. Because almost everything else we may be able to have some influence over. But when it comes to actually making a, uh, a particular outcome occur, that's extremely difficult in, in the real world. You know, there may be certain successes in, in mechanical production and what have you, but as soon as you're starting to talk about people and a variety of behaviors and emotions and what have you, it, it gets messy pretty quickly. But within mm -hmm. ourselves, we have the opportunity to observe what's happening and we do have the opportunity to neutralize what's happening. But, you know, you <laughs> mentioned briefly, you know, the, there is a huge difference between different circumstances. And so it may be that for... For people like us, let's say, although we really don't know each other very well, but I think that anyone who is uh, in a situation right now where you can afford to, I've heard this bit pointed out a number of times, where you can afford to actually shelter in place, that's actually a privilege in and of itself. And there are many people throughout the world who uh, the idea of being able to self-isolate for any period of time is an absurdity. There's just no way, you know, in order to make it from day to day, it's, you're talking about a subsistence level where you can't really stand still. You don't have enough stored away. You don't have the ability to, to buy enough to live for a week, you know. When you really get down to the brass tacks of it, some of the civilizations in the past that have brushed up against that level of difficulty on a regular basis are the ones which produce the insight for the technique that we're talking about right now. So some of the cultures that have had the longest periods of poverty and warfare and uncertainty are the ones that have learned the discipline of the mind. So in a sense, this is kind of an irony because it may be that actually those of us who live in relative comfort are way less able to practice these things. <laughs> On the other hand, I would be really, you know, I always feel a sort of pain inside of myself whenever I talk about these things because, because I'm not in a situation where I'm, I'm, you know, on the street, basically. Right. And so it's like the idea that if we're going to talk about humanity all coming together and that we're all in some sort of a common consensus, the idea that we can put forth the idea of controlling one's mind, worry is not preparation as being the actual solution, even though I believe it is. But, but 
the idea of me saying that to someone who's living on the street, it like offends my, I offend myself thinking that yes. <laughs> that would be okay to say, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so that's one of the things that I struggle with trying to figure out like, if we're really going to talk about this as a pivot point for all of humanity and everyone is kind of in agreement that this is that moment, then what do we do? The thing that dismays me more than anything else is that what we're seeing happening right now is that all of the resources being brought to bear in this country are going to the fucking banks that started this mess, not this mess, but that are responsible for the stories that have not died and that have created ever more serious consequences for ordinary participants in the economy. And that the, the, you know, $1,200 per person is a one-time payment that may arrive within three months is the way that they're thinking about how to deal with everyone else. That That's not the way to get people to stay home. Oh you want to get God. people to stay home? You fucking pay them to stay home. I mean, There's enough money for it. It's, yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable that they're throwing trillions of dollars, you know, at, at worthless paper, financialized bullshit, you know, to prop up people's portfolios, the people who already have everything, right? And then, mm -hmm. like, it's a few hundred billion, which is a lot of money, but it's a few hundred billion that they're throwing to the people who are trying to live day to day, that just, it's so breathtakingly tone deaf and criminal and just, it's, it's mind blowing to me that this, you know, that they can't wake up in this moment. That's, I guess, basically what it feels like to me. It's like, we're all realizing that, yeah, we are in the same boat seems like that's kind of the general sense of like, well, this thing got around the whole world within the matter of a few weeks, right? So we really are all in the same boat. And like, even the rich people are like, some of them got checked into a hospital because they got exposed or got sick, right? So hmm. it is kind of flattening like all of the disparities, except it seems like the people who are calling the shots haven't quite gotten that memo yet. And hmm. so, yeah, you know, not to like tip it back into the realm of worry again, but those are some of the things that come up when I'm thinking about uh, how to best handle this. And I know that, you know, from personal experience that what you're saying is really the bottom line truth that we each have within us this capacity to balance ourselves out and to neutralize all the, uh, all the freaking out that might be happening within the mind and to calm the emotion down and that that is ultimately our best strategy for dealing with whatever the hell is going on, right? And it always has mm -hmm. been because right now we're talking about an illness that's maybe two to 3% death rate. And then like a hundred years ago, the Spanish flu was like 30%, you know? So when it comes to, and, and you know, we're still not in a situation where bombs are being dropped on us and we're having to run, you know what I mean? So when it comes to like the mm -hmm. kinds of horrible shit that people have had to deal with over the centuries, um, many of us, not all of us, but many of us are still, it's really not that bad, but people are still freaking out, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, if in, if in really incredibly trying times where they're, seems to be absolutely no hope whatsoever. People were still able to persevere under those conditions and to come out with their minds and bodies intact. 
well, then certainly this this is some you know a testing ground of a relatively mild sort, right? Um, yes. So that was a whole lot of stuff I just said. <laughs> yes, for, uh, I think it was a it was an even an even distribution. I spoke a lot, and then you spoke a lot. Mm, I uh, I also enjoyed the the uh, heightened emotion that that we experienced in that mm. in that sharing of yours just now. It feels good. I think uh, I think that's helpful. Um, there's a lot of fear going on, and also I think a lot of anger mm. at how the situation is being handled. And I think it's important. Uh, to not only have a good outlet for fear, but also to have a good outlet for anger and sadness. It's my perspective that anger is really just the the mask of that sadness wears because sadness sadness is a more vulnerable emotion than anger, and so we put on the front of anger when when at our core there's a profound sadness and grief about how all of this has been playing out, not just this virus situation, but, but this whole, uh, Mm. societal experience that we've been experiencing. Like, it's almost like, like if I were some traveler somewhere, I wanted to go on a vacation and I bought a ticket to travel and I bought a ticket to stay at this marvelous resort. And then I arrive and it's just not what not what the brochure said. It's not what was on the website. The reviews were actually fake. And it's all like, this is not what I paid for. That's well, what it sort of feels like to be living these days. <laughs> there you have the distance between the story and the reality, right? So when, when, mm-hmm. when everything is that flimsy and thin and just like, a, what do they call it? Um, Potemkin Village. It's just like, uh, the mm. facade of a building, you know, and you peek around the corner, it's like, what is all that shit back there? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's the distance between the story and the reality. And, and God knows, you know, there's a long history of hucksterism within, um, well, throughout, I think probably the entire world, but quite often they'll say, you know, American hucksterism. Right. But I think mm-hmm. in, in many respects, this is, this is entertainment, you know, that's showbiz, friends. It's it's like yep. don't look behind the curtain, you know. Yeah. And and when the curtain comes sure up, we it's could. a completely different thing than what was going on when that curtain was down. So right. So we have that to deal with, and I think that 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 it's interesting that you're identifying grief as being more fundamental than anger, and there's a number of different things that are worth thinking about. There, one of course is that. This is a disease of the lung, and in Chinese medicine, the lung, uh, an imbalance in the lung is manifested as grief. Each of the, there's basically a five-element system that talks about a wide range of different associations. The lung is associated with the element metal, and metal is associated with grief because it has to do with a very specific kind of structural order. It's like being boxed into a place and you have no freedom of movement, right? Mm. Which I think is, you know, a disease of the lung feels like you're stuck. You know, you can't breathe is like no breathing room, right? No breathing room is like being locked Mm -hmm. in a Mm -hmm. cell, 
right? So it seems like this is a disease that kind of expresses the condition of, of humanity at this time, right? Whereas anger is something that's associated with the wood element, which is on the other side of the uh, equation. So wood would be associated with the east, with the rising side. And interestingly, metal is associated with the west, the descending side. So the, like the end of civilizations would be the West, where things settle into a kind of a fragile but, um, and brittle order, you could say. And then on the rising side, you have uh, wood, which is this energy that's kind of wells up from the earth and reaches towards the sun. So that's like a, a, a civilization in its ascendancy, you could say, right? Yeah. And anger is the, the result from having that, that, wood energy rising in some way or another cut off, right? So if there's a block to that wood energy, then the resulting is anger, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a little different than the kind of anger that, that you were talking about. This is almost like an anger of not people who are necessarily rising up, but people who are like sitting on the couch, you know what I mean? Like the wood energy mm -hmm. rises up, right? But the West energy, the, the, the metal energy is everyone's kind of locked in their box, right? And in some sense, like ever since the television, uh, we have been increasingly locked into our boxes in various ways. So mm -hmm. I think it's a very, it's an astute observation that whatever, whatever the uh, anger expressed now is, it's really fundamentally grief you know, that underlying it. And that yes. kind of anger, like that really is anger, is a different thing, a different animal. It's also interesting to note that fear, which is in the, in the five element theory, you move from metal to water to wood and water is in between metal and wood and water is the uh, element that has fear within it when it's imbalanced. Mm. So when, when the metal structure starts to crumble, it's like a tidal wave, right? And that wave is the water, right? And so everyone is afraid that the system is going to fall apart, right? That's what the global system has done now. It's, it's stopped. We don't know if it's going to fall apart right now. But, but for all intents and purposes, mm -hmm. the, the global economic system has ground to a halt, and now the big question is, can we get it moving again? And can we get it moving again and not or have do we want to in the well, same way? You know, that's a really good question too. You know, it, it, there's so many problems with that system to begin with, but are we going to be able to have the presence of mind to retool things in a way that works better while we're trying to just get the wheels moving again? Like that seems like a tall order. You know, we really should have been rethinking this a long time ago, when we were starting to see the warning signs of distortions happening within the economy. But all that stuff got papered over with, you know, showbiz and, and promises of endless returns. You know, there's this, there's this um, cartoon that I've seen going around a little bit here and there on the internet that is a picture of a little family huddled around a, uh, a campfire in like kind of a post-apocalyptic circumstance where there's nothing but ruin, right? And the father is like, you know, they've got like a stick there with something in, in the campfire and they're kind of huddled together. And the father is like, well, but for one glorious moment there, we 
generated enormous returns for shareholders, you know? So that, <laughs> that's the, uh, that's the story, um, you know? I want to cry. Yeah. It's horrible. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing instead because it's also a hilarious joke. You know, it, it is a horrible cosmic joke. And, and, and yeah, on the one hand, what can you do? But, you know, laugh and cry. Laughing and crying is like, I mean, you have to laugh because if all you do is cry, it would just be no end, right? Well, I, I think it would get boring after a while. Oh yeah, I, I think there's only so much wallowing in the uh, in the in the tragedy of it all that we can do. But mm-hmm. you know, at the same time, I think it's worth recognizing, to whatever extent we're able, the reality of 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 you know the story underlying the stories. You know, you can do a certain amount of forensics here and and get, I think, a pretty decent picture of what's been going on. You know. Mm-hmm even with all the various, you know, efforts to suppress the, the truth of the story, I think it's relatively widely understood now that, you know, this is, this is basically what's happened. The, the people who were entrusted with maintaining the system became outrageously greedy and continued to artificially prop up Systems that were non-functional and profits that were non-existent. I would call it an addiction at this point. Mm. Well, that also I, I think, think is a long. It's a long-standing theme. Yes. You know, within within human civilization, but I think within the United States, uh, we romanticized addiction. Coming out of the '60s was when it really came to full full blossom. But there's always been a kind of flirtation with it. Even prior to that, you had people who love excesses and experienced junkies and what have you. Hedonism? Yeah, that's the word. Thank you. It's, you know, a long-standing tradition. I guess you could say that it goes back um, probably to the beginning of civilization. It's, you know, the cult of Dionysus and what have you in ancient Greece. And uh, so it's a, it's a big part of the human experience. But it's got its consequences, and I think it really got let loose in the 60s. And, and we had all of these romanticized images and stories of, you know, people who took it way out there, life in the fast lane, if you like. And as a consequence, we now kind of have a culture that's addicted to addiction. <laughs> and... And we're going to probably have to wean ourselves off of some of our major addictions mm-hmm. unless, unless the global economy is able to return to, you know, what do we call it? The old normal? <laughs> yeah, uh, really. Jeez. No, thank you. I know, right. And who would uh, want to go back I'd to I'd like that? to see the whole thing fall apart if that means a better world. Um, well, that's the question, there's, right? There's, Right. And I think we need to make it ourselves um, or at least question the process that unfolds all along the way. There's something I wanted to, to a point I wanted to make about um, anger and grief, mm. fi- uh, fire and metal. Um, That's a wooden metal. You said it's or wooden metal. Metal. Yes. Um, I don't know much about the traditional Chinese system 
of elements or medicine or anything like that, but something came to mind when you said the, it seems like the anger that we're dealing with now is a, a, of a different kind than the real wood anger. Yeah. And I don't think it is. Okay. I think it's actually that we've just become ungrounded. Like for wood, for a tree to burst forth from the ground, it has to first establish its roots. And we don't have any roots mm -hmm. these days. We have no, we've lost our connection to earth for one, mm -hmm. um, because we're all hypnotized by screens. Mm -hmm. And also we've lost our connections with our own selves and bodies because we're hypnotized by screens and authority figures who tell us what to eat and how to behave and all this stuff. Um, so I think the anger is there. It's the same anger. We just don't know what to do with it. So it festers. Right. I guess the question then, and it I think it's alive. I think that's a great observation. I guess the question is, you know, the degree to which it would be wood energy without a root you know what I mean? But I think all that's technical. Mm -hmm. it, it's, you know, open to interpretation, but I think it's a great point. Um, you could say that in essence, that the, the, the civilization has lost its way. And, and, and in a certain sense, the anger is now becoming somewhat blind, right? It's not necessarily mm -hmm. attached to any particular route because we don't quite understand where we are or what we're doing anymore. I think that when... Gosh, you, that really hits deep. <laughs> yeah, I think that unfortunately what, what happens in the kind of economy, you know, even if you take it on, on a, not a particularly metaphysical level, if you just think of what it is that the occupations are that we involve ourselves with, Quite often, it's very abstract, or it's just playing some tiny role in a very large mechanism of things that we don't necessarily like or enjoy or even think of as being all that worthwhile, but it's just part of this big machine that's been set up, and we're all kind of told that we have to keep pushing it forward in order to make things happen. And if you try and get out there and figure out some way of making a living that doesn't interface with all that in one way or another, then quite often you really don't find there's much to do. So mm. in some ways, we really have kind of lost our way. We're not really sure, except for like, we're doing it basically because we need to pay the bills. So it's like, yeah, uh, yes, we're pretty much doing it for money. <laughs> yeah. We're, so we're doing these various things for money, but we don't really know like whether or not it's a great idea to be doing them. There are some exceptions. I think there are some people who have found a way of building their life uh, that makes a fair amount of sense to them. I'm not sure that everyone would agree that that life makes sense, but I think that some people are, are able to put it together. But I think a significant percentage of people within the modern world are involved in things that they're not necessarily attracted to doing. And I've been really interested lately in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm, I'm going to release a podcast that kind of combs through the Sermon on the Mount. And there's one point where, where Jesus says something about just do what you want to do. <laughs> so I can't remember how it's exactly uh, translated, but that's the basic message. It's, it's around the time where he says, don't swear, which means not don't curse. It means don't promise things that you can't deliver on. It means don't uh, sign a contract. Just make your answer yes or no. 
and then it's and, and then it's something about like do what you want to do do what you what is like within you really the thing that's worth doing which is to some extent why I'm doing this because I think these kinds of conversations are are worth having and mm-hmm. it's it's some kind of a I hope you know a balance to some of the things that I that I have to do that I don't really want to do just to make it through life you know but I think as 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 a culture at large, you know, one of the big stories is that we have to do these things that we don't want to do in order to keep the the whole thing going. And I think maybe there's a, a relationship there with the whole addiction thing, because I think that quite often addiction is a way to escape from that feeling that I'm pouring my life's energy into something that I don't want to pour it into. You know? Mm-hmm. Um. I would be interested in having another separate discussion about addiction specifically, mm. if if you think that would be fruitful. Sure. I have a lot to say about it, and I think it would be fun and uh, informative to share our perspectives about that. Great. Um, so yeah. perhaps, yeah. We could save that for There's, next um, Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. There, There is something... I would like to talk about, I've had this feeling for a while about money and how it's just like, I've, I've done my, my work around removing any blocks I have about money, any ill feelings I have about money. It's a neutral thing. It's a tool. It's just one of the infinite forms of energy that exists. It's a way for us to simplify um, the law of equivalent exchange. It's basically what it enables us to do. Um, however, when it starts informing what people do, it, it messes up the whole system. So you have people becoming teachers um, or lawyers or doctors, not primarily because that's what they love doing and they're passionate about it and they just want to do it more and more and be the best they can be, but because it's either a very lucrative job or it's a very secure job. Hmm. And then you just mess up everything. I mean, I can be a good surgeon without really enjoying it, sure. But when you get teachers who don't really enjoy teaching, you're messing up the future. That's what you're doing when you, you gunk up the system by replacing people's true desires with money. Um, well, so yes, I know it's, and, and here's where like, I get very idealistic and stuff, but I think this ideal, this I've, I've been called this, uh, pie in the sky person, right? So there's a, there's this pie in the sky and it's so great. I want to eat it, but how, how the heck can we get up there? How is that pie even up in the sky anyway? That's beyond this analogy, this metaphor. Um, (laughs) My, my, when I start, (laughs) when I start really digging into this, it feels less like a dream and more like, like, no, I know, I know that it's possible to have a functioning society where, where there is far less suffering, far more equally distributed resources and far more people doing what they actually want to do. Don't ask me how we get there. Maybe this is a huge step in that direction. It depends on a lot of stuff. I think but, it's possible. 
I don't know what kind of a. a I think it's possible or, too. Yeah, I think it's quite possible. I think in some ways we've been we're being pulled in that direction. Although the degree to which it becomes something that we would want to do is really, I think, at, at, at most at question here. I'm not sure mm-hmm. whether we can speak about what people want to do as necessarily being the best thing for them to do, right? So I have... Oh, that's dangerous territory. We I know, and, and, it, and, it, and it also, you know, contradicts what, uh, what Jesus puts forth in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. But I think, you know, we can maybe zero in a bit on what's meant by want, right? So, you know, mm-hmm. do what thou will, right? Is mm-hmm. maybe a little bit different than saying... Do whatever you want, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> because in a way, you like could use somewhat different voices to yeah. To well, that, that helps too. to get it across, right? Because <laughs> you know, in a way, the do whatever you want is more on the addiction side of things, right? And do what that mm-hmm. will is maybe something that's more about uh, fulfilling destiny, like clear clearing things out, you know. Uh, resolving the tension within the mind and the body and the emotion and understanding that there's a purpose and fulfilling that purpose. It's not necessarily something pe- that people would want to do, but that's the best path. It's way better than doing whatever right. you want, right? So well, I think here's the thing, though. Um, just a quick point about addiction. Uh, by nature, addiction supersedes desire. It's stronger oh, yeah. than desire. Right, that's so, interesting, yeah. So that's not exactly what people want to be doing. It's just what they find themselves doing because it's a a super habit. Yeah, that's like, a good point. No, I don't want to continue doing this behavior, but I'm doing it anyway because it's just what I'm, I'm doing. And quite often, stop, you know, please help. Yeah, and the longer it goes, the less you want to do it, but you may still end up doing it anyway if you can't right. clean things up. Yeah, that's very true. And that's part of the destructive nature of addiction, basically watching yourself continue to do the thing that you just pray to God that you stop somehow right. by divine grace and you just keep on doing it. Yep. Oh, it's hideous. You know, the, the money thing I think is also related to this addiction uh, in, in a certain sense. I agree. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure that I would characterize it the same way that you do. I do think well, I mean, I just did this thing on the Sermon on the Mount. So there's the passage where Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters. It will either be God or money. And it's, it's quite Ooh. stunning. You know, but serving two masters, right? It's like, if you're going to serve one master, it doesn't necessarily mean that the other thing is completely eliminated. It just means that you're not serving it, right? So there's some truth, right. I think, in the idea that there is a neutrality to, to money, but it, it only is neutral if you treat it as neutral. And, and you know, so, so many people place such emphasis on money, it really is the idol. You know, that is idol worship, right? So, mm-hmm. and, and it becomes the master, right? It, it, it determines, you know, one of the things that I said, it's like, well, okay, you, you can, when I was in Thailand, I was told, you can basically spend $1,000 in Thailand and get someone killed. That's what it costs. And I don't know whether or not, I don't know whether or not it's that much more expensive here, really, you know? 
But in a certain sense, that's proof that money has a fundamentally corrupting effect because, and particularly when people are, are placed in circumstances, which we're all in right now, where everyone needs it in order to have a halfway decent life, people will do things that they would not ordinarily do in order to get the money they need in order to have a halfway decent life, right? And that means that people who have money can get people to do things that they would not ordinarily do on mass. Oh yes. So yes, So that's, you know, some of the thinking that leads me to believe that there's something inherent to money that's extremely problematic. And that it really mm-hmm. when it comes down to it, although we may within ourselves have the option to treat it with some neutrality in the same way that we have the option to relieve ourselves of worry. When it comes down to how it actually functions in society, it's, it's really, it's almost never treated neutrally because it's become, it's been made into something that's essential for life, which is, as we know it. Yeah. Which I think is, is, you know, you could say, uh, equivalent to the abomination of desolation, that 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 is really at the core of what has caused this um, disconnect within humanity. Hmm. There is one more thing I want to talk about, and this is somewhat of a projection into the future, into that reality that we both feel it, it deeply is is possible, but are both unsure of how we actually get there. Um, okay. Now, this is this is very far out. Ultimately, money is completely eliminated. Maybe on the next episodes, I can present you with an imaginary dial from one to eleven, perhaps, and one is kind of like the most grounded in the basic story that we've been telling ourselves as a civilization. Eleven is the most far out shit you can ever think of and like totally beyond metaphysical time travel, future civilizations, extraterrestrials, all this stuff, because I I love talking about whatever it is, as long as it's an engaging and nourishing conversation. So (laughs) this is sort of, sort of pressing a bit further, turning the dial up a little bit. It feels like I, I, I have some kind of connection to, it, it like it, when I look at how things are being done here on earth right now, I'm like, this is, geez, is this where we're at? Like humans are still, humans are still at this level of, of development. Huh? Interesting. Okay. Taking notes on this. Um, it, it feels like I have a general idea of the progression of an intelligent race of beings. Hmm. Uh, and there are some things out there. They don't have to be super heady or weird. Like there are the different levels of civilization that are defined by how they get their energy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And eventually we're using completely renewable resources. So the kind of society that I'm talking about needs to be both technologically and spiritually mature in order to exist. Mm -hmm. We are neither of those right now, far from both actually. Um, It needs to be using 100% renewable resources so that energy is essentially free. There is so much of a grasping, addictive hold on energy management right now because that's where most of the money is. And we need to let go of that. We need to just 
let it go, let it fall away and just learn how to fucking share, like learn how to coexist. Like, yes, this person can have everything they need. And yes, you can have everything they need. There's more than enough for everyone. It's just not getting to where it needs to be. Eventually, we don't need money anymore because everyone just like has everything they need. And so there's no fighting for anything. Um, I think there are many ways to get to that point. There are certainly some more artificial ways of getting there for sure. And this is a possible near future reality that I'm going to talk about. Um, so there's been some buzz about a universal basic income being implemented in the United States, mm-hmm. um, which seems like a really good idea because it seems like large scale unemployment is the new norm mm-hmm. that we're dealing with. Yeah. So we need to figure out how to redefine what it means to be a functioning member of society. If I can't go out there and work and make money, which is for, that's the majority of what the definition of a functioning member of society has been, being able to work and make money. If I can't do that, how do I function as a member of society? How do we, we need to redefine what society is. We need to change our way of life completely. There's a lot of ideas about how like 70% or more of the workforce can be replaced with robots because most of that work is menial labor anyway. Right. Um, And so that would be a a step in that direction. But then it's like, okay, well, now that we have all this free time, what do we do? We have more time. We can do what we want because we don't necessarily need to earn money to, to live because, well, hey, maybe just by having a body on this planet, I have a right to live and a right to resources and water and shelter and all these basic needs that I don't really feel like I should be paying for. Like who is in charge of this world and why? Um, well, that, that's actually then, another part of the, um, of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you know, don't worry mm-hmm. about food and don't worry about clothing because, you know, God knows that you need those things right? And see how he dresses the lilies of the field, you know? Uh, so, it, you know, it's that kind of naturalistic sense of like, hey, you know, we just all show, showed up here. Like, as far as I can tell, no one asked to be here. So why exactly do we have to do this whole crazy making money thing in order to, right? So, mm-hmm. but I mean, there's an awful lot of things that can be said about that. And again, like, you know, you're, you're saying, don't worry too much about the details. I'm kind of ta- drawing a, an overall picture. And I think that that's very helpful for people having some kind of a, a vision, like a sense of what things might move towards. But More I also like think, an emotional understanding of it. Yes. Yeah. It, it seems like, you know, a large part of it comes down to you're dealing with entrenched power, right? They, they don't want that, any of that, right? Because they, re- they rely on slavery in order to maintain their power and and the redistribution that would need to occur would largely have to come from their so-called pockets you know what we'd have to do i think is to somehow or another create memes that are so powerful that it would actually influence the mind of the people who have that kind of power like if you could convince jeff bezos that he's wasting his time trying to get off this planet with his, you know, competition with Elon Musk. Oh, I, I didn't even know much about that. But yeah, like he's got here. his own space program and Elon's got his space program. So they're kind of like, you know, huh. trying to find a way to get 
get uh get us get themselves, I guess, off this planet before it all goes out. Jeez. I don't know if that's exactly what they have in mind, but that they're definitely in some kind of a space race, right? You know, this is a guy who uh, his company just has been demonizing one of their managers for trying to make the workplace more safe for people who are still working there in in the face of the COVID-19 crisis. And not long ago, like there was this whole movement to try to get Amazon to pay their workers a $15 minimum. And prior to that, like there was all this controversy about people being worked so hard that they would like piss in their pants and stuff like that because you would be docked every time you took a, a, a bathroom break because it's all about the amount of time it takes you to get from point A to point B to get, you know, so it's like, that's the kind of system that this guy's running. One of the wealthiest people in the world, right? Who asks people to donate for a cause <laughs> exactly. when he could just like give his money. Now that's freaking hubris. I mean, that's chutzpah. You know, I can't believe that. <laughs> How does a guy get off thinking that that's like an acceptable way to behave? But okay, so this is the kind of mind that we're dealing with. You'd have to reach this type of mind. And somehow we have to understand how it works. And, and yes, it's I very think you're difficult right about the because meaning. the problem is that people who have gotten themselves into that position think that they are the most awesome things in the world, and that they have been like given this by you know, it's their own brilliance and uh, and kind of divine nature that brought them to this level of success and. The idea that's, that some other idea than the one that they're presently having might make more sense <laughs> it would be a very difficult thing to accomplish. But I think on some level, unless we're able to make a really good case to these people, it's never going to work, you know? So, on some, mm-hmm. you know, I think that that's kind of part and part of what has to happen. And we, we just probably broke this rule, I think, is that we have to stop demonizing these people because they will never listen to anyone who's demonizing them. We have to understand them a little bit better, perhaps, because they really are like, they, they are the primary obstacle to change. They, they maintain the system. the primary catalyst, too. Well, I think there's that potential. Absolutely. You know? And it seems like, or if not the catalyst, get, a, a an, an integral part, without a doubt. I think if you could just get one of them to make a move, they would all move. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think once the if a really really good case is made and it's widely understood, you know, then it's just a matter of time because eventually, eventually, Bezos did do the right thing and he instituted the fifteen dollar minimum, right? So under pressure, mm-hmm. when, when the right case is being made and you're not trying to tear them down, you know what I mean? I think that's one of the terrible uh, tactics that's been used in, uh, in the progressive movement and in movements that are seeking to, to really make change is there's this tendency to move towards, well, just tear it all down. And I think that mm-hmm. really doesn't, doesn't do the job. It, you just end up in a in a more intense conflict zone, basically, and and the screws get tightened even more. 
and and they bring out all of the agent provocateurs and all kinds of kind of ways of infiltrating and screwing things up. So it's just like, once it gets to that combative zone, you know, like quite often people are always talking about like, well, finally the pitchforks are going to come out. You know, it's like, give me a break. You know, when you take a look at what's going on around the world right now, a population rising up right now is, isn't, it's not going to work. The technology is just way beyond what even the most well-armed population in the world can handle. And that's here in the United States. There's no way that uh, militia groups are going to like do battle with the government. I think that's absolutely insane. I think we really have to completely change the whole notion of what it means to change the world. Well, you know what? Mm. Like silence is very loud, especially in a world that's been buzzing for so long. For a long time, I've actually thought, how great would it be if there was just a giant pause button and we just pressed that button and the world stopped Mm. and we all realized, well, you know, I guess I don't need to do that thing that I thought I needed to do anymore. Uh, At least for now, for right now, this very moment, I'm alive and I'm okay. I'm, you know, our situations are different amongst us, but okay, I'm here, I'm, I'm present. And you know, maybe I have some friends, maybe I'm alone and I have myself, it doesn't matter. It's all good. And we're being, we're literally being asked to stay home and not work. This is what, this is the way to rebel. Well, we're How about we there. all stay home? I think we're halfway there. And there is like talk of a general strike right now. And that would be interesting. I think something along those lines might be necessary. Because it really does, mm-hmm. it, but it would really have to be everyone, you know? Cause yes, it would have to be everyone. That's, that's the trick, you know? It's easy to talk about. It's difficult to actually bring it about. Because we're afraid. We're afraid of not having our needs met. Well, I think it's also because we, we all have different stories. And it's, it's difficult for any of us to articulate something where everyone can go, yep, exactly. <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, there's always going to be a, a group of people who are like, yeah, that's easy for you to say, buddy. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, why don't you all strike? I could use the job. You know, so right. I mean, there's always going to be a bunch of people out there like that. In a certain sense, there's, there's a basic reality, which is that whatever it is that we want to see happen and whatever ideas we have of how to go about bringing that about, politics is really messy and dirty for a reason. And it's because on the road to trying to get your vision of how things would work better done you run up against all of this other stuff, all this resistance, all these other opinions, all these powerful interests that are trying to influence you in one direction or another, right? All of these things that you have to do in order to try to cultivate enough political support for your idea, that all of it corrupts the basic idea. And so by the end of that process, quite often, it's really no different than what it was before, (laughs) you know? So hubris mm. is the idea that we can make the world into what we want it to be. And, and those of us who are guardians of actual reality have to allow the world to be what it is. So in some respects, trying to make it into what we want it to be is a form of resistance to what it is. And I don't know that, that that's like something that would convince anyone, you know, like 
there is a way in which you might suffer worse if you let things be what they are. So there's a good reason why people are trying so hard to make it into what they want it to be. Because at least you get some little taste of it, right? And everyone gets the kind of psychic mm-hmm. energy together of like having this thing they're working on together to try and bring, bring about a better result, right? But my overall suspicion is that nature doesn't care, right? And that on some level, what nature wants from us, you know, or what God wants from us, is maybe a better way of saying it, is to love the creation. And in in some respects, that's saying the same thing as what you were saying before of like being appreciative for what we have. Because that basically Mm -hmm. is what we were given. We were given this life and the kind of way that living existence occurs, right? So that's nature. So we were given our own particular lives and then we were given the context of the natural world within which we were born into. And and that's reality, you know? And and it has its own kind of changes that are occurring that, uh, that don't really care about what our plans are, right? There's the old thing of, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans, right? <laughs> right. I love that saying. I love that saying too. I struggle all the time with this idea of like, there's, there's got to be something we can do. You know, if we could just be smart enough to like get the meme to Bezos and company and get them to see the light, then maybe you could all work out awesome, you know? Or maybe if we just all fall down on our faces and pray to God, <laughs> it would produce the same result. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> so, so I don't know, but I don't see anything here. I think we've gone for well over an hour. I've really enjoyed yeah. speaking with you. I'm glad we finally got together and did this. And, um, and let's pick it up again sometime soon. Yes, let's. Great. Thanks for listening. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home. <laughs>